Father, I pray for guidance in your word this morning. I pray that your spirit would speak. I pray, Father, that our hearts are open. There's perhaps no topic of scripture that pushes against our pride more than a topic of obedience or submission. So, Father, I pray that you'd be working now with hearts that need to hear this message, and mine included, Father, that we'd all be open to correction. We would all recognize that your wisdom, Father, is to our benefit. It brings us into a better walk with you, which increases our our joy. And so from that spirit, I pray, Father, we'd receive your word this morning. And uh, counsel us, Father, against taking what we hear and using it in wrong ways, but being submitted to you above all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I went back and I counted. I always like to look at the progress we make in a study as we go through a book. And knowing that we're near the end, I did a count. And we've reached the 24th lesson that I've taught in the book of Ephesians. We're going to finish, as I said, next Sunday, which means we have two weeks to get through chapter 6. That's faster than I would prefer normally. But we're going to get through it. We'll make it. And today we're going to wrap up Paul's instruction on submission in this letter. He's in the midst of teaching the church about six different relationships that exist in most Christian homes, Christian families, and these six relationships all require submission in one way or another. Everyone in the body of Christ is going to find themselves somewhere on this list. Paul moved into this whole conversation of submission as part of a larger conversation about missional living. And as we've learned, believers are called by Scripture to get serious about living for Christ by serving Him through our godliness and through our dedication to a testimony or a witness in the world. And Paul has added things like, hey, the days are evil. You've got to make the most of your short time. He's tried to put urgency and focus into this conversation so we won't waste any of our opportunities with foolishness, dissipation, things that get in the way of doing what we're called to do while we're on the earth. And one of the things that ensued from this larger focus on preparedness to serve in missional living, one of those details is spiritual authorities. Last week, as we looked into this topic, we noted that Paul says that there are spiritual authorities in the life of every believer, and they are there to help keep us on track in this missional lifestyle. God puts these authorities in our life so that we will be taught or corrected or encouraged to make the right choices, to be obedient and to be godly, to make the most of our days. The Lord works through these authorities for that outcome. And remember, He does that regardless of whether or not those authorities are themselves godly or obedient. Because as He says in Romans 8.28, the Lord causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He can even take an ungodly husband, and use that person to guide a submitted godly wife into greater obedience. That's the power of God to use things that don't seem to be useful to us. So that's why the Bible calls us to respect those authorities as a matter of faith, as a matter of obedience to the Lord, even when we ourselves cannot see how doing so is going to help us. That's a true mark of faith. And we began this topic last week on Easter weekend, which is probably the most unlikely place to begin a topic of this sort. I realize as we continue now looking forward into the text, we're going to move on to new obligations. Let's just review what we looked at last time. Last week it was in the obligation of a wife to her husband or for husbands to wives. Paul said wives submit to a husband's authority in the home. Paul added that husbands must submit to their wives by subjecting their desires to the desires of their wives. 
That's submitting to each other, just in different ways. And Paul went further to say those relationships serve the purpose of picturing a relationship that exists between Christ and the church. That is, Christ sacrificed everything to bring us to holiness, and so we obey him faithfully. And Paul said, we live our respective roles in marriage, thinking about this mission of portraying Christ to the world through our marriage. So in other words, marriage is not an institution that God intended so that we would manipulate it to suit our own personal desires. Rather, it's an institution God ordained to serve our holiness and to glorify Him through our testimony. So it has a missional purpose. Now let's move forward now to chapter 6. Today we're going to be talking about a new set of relationships. We have four more relationships out of these six to contend with today. Verse 1. Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So I think it's fair to say we began last week with the most controversial of all of these relationships, right? Wives submitting to husbands. Well, if that's true, well then certainly this week we've moved to the least controversial on the list. Children are called to obey their parents. And obedience here means heeding their instructions. So what we're saying is a child should take the instructions they receive from a parent regarding anything and they should obey them. They should heed them. And in case there's any adult children in the room who are wondering, well, what kind of obligation do I still have to my older parents? Well, the word child here refers to someone who is under a parent's authority. I mean, after all, the whole conversation here is about submission to someone who is your authority figure. And a son is under the authority of his parents until he leaves his mother and his father and he clings to his wife, right? So marriage becomes the point at which a son is no longer under the authority of his parents. Now he is authority over his family. Similarly, a daughter is under her father's spiritual authority until she marries. Our obligations to honor our parents never ends. But our obligations to obey our parents end at the point of marriage. That's the distinction. So, children are to obey their parents. Notice Paul adds, though, in the Lord. The phrase, in the Lord, modifies the word obey, not the word parents. So, Paul is saying, obey in the Lord. And what he means is, obedience to parents is a directive from the Lord to all children. And he proves it by quoting the fourth commandment again, in verse 2, where he reminds us that the Lord himself has called children to obey parents. And as with the case of wives obeying husbands, this rule of kids obeying their parents does not turn on whether the parents are believing or not, or even whether they're godly or not, or even whether their advice or their instructions are good or not. The law given to Israel did not stipulate, children, obey your godly parents, or children, obey your good parents, or your believing parents. No, God expects all children to obey their parents, period. Now, certainly, you and I could sit around for a while and probably imagine a series of exceptions to this rule, situations where disobedience to a parent's instructions might be necessary for the sake of some greater good, etc., etc. But Paul doesn't raise any of those exceptions here in this teaching, and neither will I, because to do so, it just distracts us from the larger point, which is parents deserve the respect and the obedience of their children, certainly more often than not. And that's an important testimony in any Christian home, both for the parents and for the children. First, I'm going to start with the parents here because I think it's fair to say that a child's pattern of obedience rests largely on the behavior of the parents. 
Parents have an obligation to expect the authority that they have to be respected or to be observed by the children. That's what the scriptures are calling for. The Lord has sent us, parents, as spiritual authorities into the home over our children, much in the same way that our Heavenly Father is our spiritual authority. So like our Father in Heaven, we're called to provide as fathers or mothers, we're called to provide spiritual direction and correction as needed to our own children, those who are under our authority. Our goal in this is to create in our child an obedient and submitted heart. So that even before we begin to teach our children things like read the Bible or pray to the Lord, even before that becomes a priority in their walk, you have to start by teaching them to obey a parent's word without question. And it is a matter of training. Let's, let's be sure we all understand that, right? Obedience is not natural for a child. The natural state of every human heart from birth is rebellion. And you know this if you've raised a child at least to the age of two, right? It's inherently one of rebellion. And that's why children need to be disciplined against themselves, against their own worst nature. By the grace of God, every parent has the potential then to raise a child who will be obedient, if not believing. As Proverbs says in Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way he shall go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parents... Leading children in this way is probably the clearest example in this list of how God can use a spiritual authority in someone's life to bring that person to greater holiness. Because parents shape a child's heart, at least to some extent, don't we agree? I mean, the Lord promises that. He promises that a faithful commitment to raising a child in the way that the Lord expects him to be raised, him or her, will be met with a heart that accepts authority. And this is true regardless of whether your child ultimately comes to know the Lord in faith or not. Proverbs 22 is a call for godly parents to raise and to train their children as a witness to the world. Now, in our days, raising obedient children has become an even greater opportunity to have a witness, a Christian witness, because as we endeavor to do this, the world around us is actually moving in the opposite direction. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul actually says that disobedient children will become a mark of the ungodliness of the last days. So as the world has come to tolerate rebellious children, to excuse it as natural, unavoidable, inevitable, our relentless pursuit of obedient children becomes all the more notable, all the more of a contrast. But friends, we lose that opportunity if we don't make gaining their obedience our priority in raising kids. So parents, what we're learning from Paul's instruction to children is we have to see a determination in our own walk as Christians to raise obedient children. We have to see that as part of our mission to serve Christ. So when you beg or negotiate, then you're forfeiting a piece of your Christian witness in that moment. Or when you turn a blind eye to a child who's showing you disrespect or ignoring your instructions, you're moving in the direction of the world rather than in the direction of Christ. Now, I know parenting isn't easy. I watched my wife raise two kids. (laughs) And I know we can't punish every little infraction. We can't react to every minor incident of disobedience. I mean, I'm realistic about the fact that this isn't a perfect process. My wife frequently counseled me over the years of us raising our two kids that you have to pick your battles. Right? There's some things that are non-negotiable and some things you might give a little ground on just for sanity's sake. Right? But the goal, the goal of obedience is unchanging. 
It's non-negotiable. One goalpost you can never move is whether they have to obey you or not. Don't let the world convince you that rebellious children are an inevitability. I can't remember how many times we heard that when we were early in marriage, before our kids. And parents would tell us, oh, you wait till they're 16, then it all just goes to heck. Or when our kids were younger and they were relatively obedient, you know, people would say, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> wait till they're teenagers. You know, I'm not saying we're perfect. We weren't. But we didn't have rebellious teens. We don't have rebellious 20-year-olds now. Is that because we're perfect? No. There's a huge dose of grace from the Lord involved in any parenting exercise. I know that. But perfection isn't the expectation. Consistency is the expectation. That is, being consistent in our expectations for their outcome, for their behavior. So obedience is an important part of a parent's witness. How you raise your kids matters. But secondly, obedience is an important blessing for your children. Regardless, again, of whether or not they ever become believing. Paul says in verse 2 that as children keep the fourth commandment, that is to obey their parents, or to honor them in the way the commandment is written, then they become eligible for a blessing. In the law it reads this way, Exodus twenty twelve: Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now for Israel, this is a law of course for Israel, and for Israel God said that obedient children would become cause for Israel to remain in the land longer as a result. That promise is there because it refers back to warnings that Moses gave Israel even before they entered the land. When Moses was speaking to Israel prior to their entry into the land, he told them, you're going to disobey the law. God gave them that prophecy that they would ultimately disobey the law. And then Moses went on to say, that would become cause, just cause, for God to set you outside the land, to disperse you as a result of your disobedience. But in the fourth commandment, God said to the people of Israel that if you raise children who obey parents, that would give cause for me to let you prolong your stay in the land. Meaning that they would be able to remain in the land to the end of that generation. That promise has a self-evident quality about it, right? Doesn't it naturally make sense that if children are learning not to rebel against their parents, they're also going to be less likely to rebel against the Lord? We can see how that would work. That is, if a generation of Israel were raised by parents to think that obedience to parents is a necessity, then that same generation is likely to escape the consequences of what Moses said would happen if they had a disobedient heart to the Lord. But there's a supernatural component to this promise as well. As the parents of Israel endeavored to raise obedient children, the Lord is promising to shine his favor on that generation. That's the way we need to understand this promise for us today, for Christian families today. Because we're not Israel. We're not under the law. He's not speaking about our land. So none of those things are directly applicable to us. Nevertheless, there's a general principle here that does apply, which is that as we serve God by raising obedient kids, he delights to bring favor back upon our children. And since Paul repeats this instruction to the church in his letter, this now becomes a part of the law of Christ. This principle, the the fourth commandment, is effectively incorporated into the law of Christ at this point. So parents, here's how we need to react to this truth in our families. We want our children to experience the blessing that God offers to families who have obedient kids. So when we set our kids down to explain these things, to encourage their obedience, we ought not simply say, do it because I said so. Now that should be enough, we all know that, but it doesn't work that way, right? As children grow, you're not just teaching them to obey you. Ultimately, you're teaching them to obey the Lord. And so at some point, you need to explain to them the biblical reasons for why obedience to parents is important. 
that obedience is both right, Paul says at the end of verse 1, that is righteous, and it leads to an opportunity for their own blessing. That is, children who obey parents will see peace and contentment in their lives, in their home, in their relationship with their parents, and they're more likely to see the Lord showing favor upon them in their later years. These things go hand in hand. I'm not specifying prosperity. I'm not saying exactly what will come. I'm saying there's a principle here that God will hold to. And if you want to flip this thing on its head, you can just as easily tell your child that if you maintain a rebellious heart, that if you incline yourself to disagree with authority from parents or others in your life, you're going to see the consequences of rebellion over time. And then finally, a final thought. If you have believing children specifically, obedience to parents for them is part of their own Christian witness. And that needs to be a discussion in the home as well. Emphasizing the fact that when they obey their parents, they're living missionally even as children. In this whole conversation of what it means to live missionally, for a parent it means to expect obedience and to inspire it in your children. For the child who is believing already, for them it's about a witness of being obedient to the instructions of Scripture in the home. They need to understand that if they attend church regularly with you, that if they witness to their friends in the schoolyard, if they serve in the worship band, if they take mission trips and all the other stuff, but they do not obey their parents, they have no credibility in their witness. That's job number one for kids. Obey your parents. All the other stuff is a waste of time if you don't do job number one. And as a result, Christian children who do not take this command to heart risk becoming a negative reflection even on the witness of the parents. Have you ever heard the term pastor's kids? It's a term that people coined years ago to describe what is a, unfortunately a common problem in the church where you see a pastor's kids often being the most rebellious ones in the church body. It's a stereotype, which means it has a kernel of truth in it, unfortunately. If it has any truth at all, it's probably because men and women in pastoral ministry will often get so busy solving every other family's spiritual problems that they do it at the expense of attending to their own. That's a good example of how failing to raise submitted children can detract from an otherwise good witness. Because think about how your perception of a pastor changes when you notice that their own children can't even be expected to obey. It has a detrimental influence on that man or that woman's work. So if you won't discipline your children for their sake, do it for your own sake, for your own witness, for your sanity in your home, for the testimony of being a peaceful home. As I said last week, each of these relationships, though, has a reciprocal form. You know, everyone got focused initially on wives submitting to husbands. It's the one we get all worked up over, forgetting that the husbands had an equally difficult role of submitting to their wife in a new way, in a way of needs. Well, similarly here, Children, submit to your parents, yes, in obedience. But parents, you have a role of submitting to your children, too, at least in a sense. Verse 4, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Obviously, we weren't going to expect to see Paul say something like, Parents, obey your children, right? It wasn't going to come out that way. But that doesn't mean there aren't other ways in which parents are supposed to show submission. In this case, Paul says a Christian father, and let's just generalize this for our conversation, because clearly it's equally true for mothers, especially in homes in which there's only a mother. That mother is the only authority figure. So we're talking here about parents. Paul says parents should show self-restraint 
in the way they choose to instruct and to discipline their children. That is, fathers, parents, don't provoke your children to anger. The words in English, provoke to anger, that's a single word in Greek. And it could simply mean making someone angry. You might say, don't aggravate your children. That's another way of writing it. You remember I said that Paul's instructions to husbands and wives were revolutionary in his day? Last week we said about how much Paul is often portrayed as being biased against women because of his instructions, when in reality, Paul was the true progressive of his day. He elevated women in the Christian home to be equal with her husband in worth and in honor and in sacrifice. Now you see Paul doing something very similar here when it comes to children. In both Roman and Jewish societies of Paul's day, a father had absolute, unchallenged authority over his children. Children were seen as little more than property in the family. A father could discipline his child any way he wanted, including doing things that today would get a guy put in jail for abuse. But that was the way the culture viewed children. But now you see Paul saying, No, 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 no. Christian parents, Christian fathers, you can't even provoke your child to anger. Now, Paul is setting limits here on parental authority and childbearing. A father may be the absolute figure in the home for authority purposes, but he does not have absolute authority in the home. His authority is checked, and it's checked by what's best for the child. So just as a child submits to the authority of a parent, a parent submits to the best interests of the child. So the goal of every Christian parent is to raise a godly child, hopefully one that comes to know the Lord. And to do that, you have to guard against anything that is inside of us that would be counterproductive to encouraging the respect and the obedience of our children. To restrict our own authority, that we exercise a measure of self-discipline and we make certain sacrifices so that we can focus on producing a godly child. That's missional living as a parent. It means thinking carefully about the best ways to raise up a child who will then go out into the world and reflect Christ. So it means, among other things, not putting roadblocks in your child's desire to obey. He says, don't aggravate them. Don't make their obedience less likely. Instead, he says, discipline and instruct in the Lord. Notice the order there. Proper child rearing means, first, discipline and then Instruction. You simply cannot do the second if you do not do the first. A child who will not pay attention, a child who will not sit still, a child who will not respond obediently to a parent's word is not going to receive instruction. Not from the parent and probably not in school. Certainly your approach to discipline may vary, and I'm not here to preach to you on how you discipline your child. But regardless of your method, every Christian parent must arrive at some form of discipline that results... Inobedient children. What do you think every parent who has disobedient children will tell me? Well, I discipline. I discipline, but it doesn't work. Well, by definition, if what you're doing doesn't result in obedience, it's not discipline. Not for that child. Not enough for that child. And there's some kids you can give them a hard look and it's enough to break them down. That was my son. We hardly ever had to raise a hand or even punish him. He was just crushed at our disappointment. My daughter, you'd spank her and she'd say, is that all you got? I'm serious. (laughs) You know, in the case of my daughter, I couldn't just satisfy myself with a stern look. Let that be a lesson to you. It would have had no effect. It was effectively not disciplined for her. But on the other hand, for my son, to go any stronger than needed would have aggravated him to anger. It would have put him in a situation in which he no longer understood that I loved him. 
So that approach that's tailored to the need of the child is appropriate. We all get it. But what you do not have an option to do as a Christian parent is to stop short of what's needed to get the obedience. You can't say, well, I have a line. I never do more than this with my child. As soon as they figure out that that's your rule, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to live on the other side of that line all day long because they just figured out what they need to get what they want. You've got to show them that there is no line when it comes to obedience. There are certainly lines we all understand with regard to what is abuse or what is inappropriate. I'm not talking about going down those roads. But I'm saying there is some mixture of consequence that will get to every child sooner or later. And it's especially true if you start when they're very young. If you wait till they're 16 to start working in this way, you're never going to have any success at all. So Paul is saying that a child has to be obedient and he's asking parents to do it in the right way. And it starts with discipline so that we create the right environment in which instruction can now happen. And notice he says it is instruction of the Lord. And that is to say, Christian parents have to teach children about the Lord. And that chiefly means instructing them on the word of God. That's regardless of whether they're believing or not. I want to keep emphasizing that here. There is no distinction in this list when it comes to where the person's heart is. Give no thought to whether your child is believing or not as you execute against this plan. Now, certainly we have goals for that. We have hopes for that. But that doesn't change our method. Every child gets taught on the Bible. Every child gets instructed to be obedient. Every child's expected to obey. It doesn't matter their relationship to the Lord. Start at an early age. Even before they're able to talk, right at the point of that time in their life, that's when you should be in a daily routine teaching your children the Bible. By the way, if you say, well, I don't really know much about the Bible, see it as a win-win. You're going to learn too. And I guarantee you, you know enough to teach a four-year-old, which is where you're going to start. By the time they're 16, you'll probably be a pretty good student yourself, if you do it regularly. In fact, I would challenge every Christian parent to make a goal for the entire family to sit and study, or at least read, the entire Bible with all your children while they're still in the house. No child should graduate out of a Christian family without having read the whole Bible with their parents. Now, I realize that's not something we can all say we've done. My point is, that should be a goal, don't we think? Families that study the Bible together are families that are growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ together. And Paul says that's a core mission of a Christian family. More than teaching them math, more than teaching them how to hunt, those things are fine. But ahead of all of that is teaching them in the Lord. And if you're getting ready to be an empty nester, already an empty nester, or a grandparent, or someone who just doesn't have kids under their authority right now for whatever reason, fine. See, this is training for how you're going to help your children raise their kids, or some niece or some nephew, in some other context. Be a source of guidance to someone else. That's missional living. Subjecting our personal desires to the needs of what it takes to raise godly kids, and not provoking them to anger, giving more care to your career than to them giving more time to your hobbies than to them. Letting them get away with so much that they start trying to figure out where are my limits and so they start acting out to try to figure out when am I going to get mom or dad even upset at me. Any of those things are ways in which we provoke our children to negative behavior. So sacrifice your time, sacrifice your energy, sacrifice whatever it takes to invest into the spiritual lives of your children and you will be doing as the Lord is asking of Christian parents. There's a great little story that James Dobson of Focus on the Family tells. He tells the story of how when he grew up, his father, James Dobson Sr., had a ministry of his own, traveling as an itinerant preacher. And he was pretty popular in his day and was well-liked and was requested a lot. And he was on the road a lot. And because of him being gone so much, James Dobson's mother 
made a point to tell his father, you need to come home and stay home and help me raise our kids. You can't be gone so much. Which the father did. And as a result, he got away from preaching and lost his contact to that world. And over time, they forgot about him. And so as he got to the point later in life when he could go back to preaching, his children were grown now and he could go back, there was nothing to go back to. There was no ministry. No one remembered him. It meant that staying home to take care of his kids basically killed his opportunity to be in pastoral ministry or teaching ministry. And at first thought, you might think that was a bad choice. It was a poor sacrifice. Sacrificing ministry to the kingdom for the sake of just doing what his wife wanted. That's not the way you think of this story, of course, because what was the effect of that man's decision? He raised James Dobson, who then started a ministry whose reach far exceeds anything that his father was doing in his own life. So he invested into his child's spiritual development, which resulted in God taking that and magnifying it beyond what he was doing in his own power apart from that. You need to think of how you raise your kids from that perspective. Not what is God going to do through my life, but what will God do through my child's life if I make my child's life godly, if I help contribute to that. And now just to cover one last base here that I think might be on the minds of some. How much responsibility do Christians, Christian parents bear for how their kids turn out as adults? I think it's certainly obvious and wrong for us to suggest that a parent is completely responsible for the path that a child takes later in life. But by that same token, I think it's equally wrong to believe that our methods have no bearing and we have no responsibility. It'd be like saying that getting a good kid is like hitting the lottery. Everyone plays and a few of us win. That's not how this works, right? Common sense tells us that parental style matters. Whatever style you adopt is going to have an influence on your child's character. Generally speaking, abusive parents are more likely to raise troubled children rather than godly children, generally speaking. And the same can be said for absentee parents. The same can be said for overly permissive parents. When you make these choices and how you bring up your kids, it's going to have an impact. It's not like there's no relationship. And conversely, a parent who places the spiritual needs of their child above their own personal needs, that means taking time to patiently teach them when you'd rather be doing something else, disciplining and encouraging them, making the effort to do the hard part of parenting when it's not convenient, you do that consistently and you'll be more likely to raise a godly child. It's just a simple equation. In all fairness, I think all parents deserve more credit than they typically get for raising good kids. And I also think we all deserve some blame for our child's shortcomings. And Paul's advice here to parents, it's predicated on that principle, right? It wouldn't make any sense for him to tell us to do better as parents if it had no impact on kids. Paul's asking us to be submitted to the greater goal of raising godly kids because that's what glorifies Christ. Because when children obey parents... And when parents submit themselves to serving the needs of their children, you end up with a peaceful, godly home that reflects Christ. Our homes are our first mission field. And like any mission field, you've got to work it with purpose or you don't get the outcome. That's the third and fourth relationships in this list. We have two more, and they go in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Now, in Paul's teaching on submission, we're going to end with two relationships here that typically you wouldn't associate with family. But in Paul's day, they were a family relationship. Verse 5, he says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as man-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, 
knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. So Paul includes these relationships of slaves to masters in his address to Christian families, and he does so because in his day most slaves served in homes. And slaves in this day were basically indentured servants, and therefore they could be seen as extensions of the family, though obviously they didn't share the same privileges as the family. Some historians have estimated that upwards of one-third of the 180 million residents in the Roman Empire were slaves. So we're talking about 60 million people as slaves. That may tell you why you see slaves written so often in the New Testament. They're a major component of society in that day. They represented the lowest caste of society. They were lower even than women and children. Today we don't see things in that way. But in the way the culture understood value, that's where they placed slaves. In fact, you can see Aristotle and others writing about slaves as little more than living tools. They said if a slave on a farm was sick, they should have been thrown out and allowed to starve to death because feeding them would be pointless. They're like a tool that's broken. We just cast it aside. So we don't have this kind of slavery around us today, at least not in most places, certainly. But for the purposes of study, it's appropriate to equate slaves of this kind to anyone who's working under authority. You could say like a laborer in the field or a laborer in factories or a Christian incarcerated in prison or perhaps serving in the military. These are all comparable circumstances in which we have a compunction to serve, we're under authority, and it's a very restrictive setting. It's not merely a casual relationship. And for this group, once again, Paul raises the bar from what existed in society. Paul says, first, to those under a master's authority, you are to be obedient with fear and trembling. He calls them masters according to the flesh because he's speaking here in terms of relative authority. There's no earthly master that commands your spirit. The Lord is our ultimate master. We're all obedient to him ultimately. But in between us and him, there are other authorities around us, men or women who we have to serve. And so long as their orders don't contradict the Lord's orders, we are to obey them as well. And the requirement to submit to a master's authority, that's hardly revolutionary. But the part that was out of keeping was this extra element that Paul added. Paul says the obedience of a slave must be in fear and trembling. To be in fear means to have true, heartfelt respect for a master's power. And trembling means with such great care and concern for daring to fail the master that you're nervous about it. That's how much concern the slave should have for being obedient. It means obey with genuine respect for authority, not just with eye service, as Paul says. Not merely as a man pleaser. What that means is there's ways in which we obey authority that serve our purposes, and then there is a way we obey authority that serves the purposes of the authority itself. You all know what the difference is, right? If you have children, you know exactly what the difference is between someone who comes with a true heart to obey and someone who is using obedience in some kind of manipulative fashion to get what they want, to get out of trouble, to get by with something until they can get where they want to go. That's not true obedience. True obedience to authority happens when your heart is fully submitted to that authority. And our submission to our masters, Paul says, have to be in the same spirit and with equal fervor to the way we serve Christ or should serve Christ. He says, don't consider yourself to be a slave to the master, Paul says. How about this? Consider yourself to be a slave to Christ. 
And therefore, serve in your earthly capacity, knowing you're doing the will of God as you conduct yourself in that job. This is a basic principle of Christian service, by the way. That is, you are ministers wherever God puts you. Your role in serving Christ is not limited to a church setting. Everywhere you go, you're serving Christ. In your workplace, in your school, in your home, wherever you go, vocational ministry like mine is no more service to Christ than when you do your job in your workplace. We're all serving Christ. That's a principle of Christian ministry. And that's why Paul says in verse 7, Render your service wherever you go as if you were employed by Christ. That verse should come to mind for you anytime you're in a position working under someone's authority. As you complete your work task, ask yourself this. Would I be doing my job any differently right now if my manager were Jesus? Would I be thinking differently about how to please my manager if it were literally Jesus? You know, Paul says in a very real sense, Christ is your boss. That is the truth. Because he puts you there. You're in a job that he assigned to you. And it's a job where he expects you to witness in that place. And the best witness you bring into that place is how you do your work. If you're sloppy at how you do your work or at all contrarian to authority, disobedient, hard to work with, have to be told to do everything twice, that kind of a person, that kind of demonstration of disrespect to authority undermines your Christian witness in that place. People just look at you overall as someone that they don't want to emulate. They don't want to model. Someone who has nothing to help them, nothing to teach them, you know, nothing they respect. And then as you turn later in your workplace and you say to them, hey, let me tell you about Jesus, what's their attitude going into that conversation? You're the guy we're all having to make up for. You're the gal who never shows up on time. You're the one the boss is always upset at, and you're going to tell me how to get to heaven? You see, it creates a barrier going into the conversation. Here again, Paul is talking about missional living, devoting your life to serving Christ wherever that is, even as a role of an employee or a slave or an incarcerated prisoner, or an enlisted man or woman in the military. Serving in those places in excellence is part of your witness, because it shows you as submitted, even to the evil masters you might encounter along the way, as a sign of your love for Christ and His work for you. It brings honor to His name. And then Paul adds this, just to give you an incentive to to do an extra good job, Paul says, those who serve Christ well will receive back from the Lord regardless of your station in life. That is, even a slave has a reward coming. And of course, he's alluding to our rewards at the judgment seat. He's reminding you, live with eyes for eternity. Don't just try to get benefit out of your current job. I think that's what's often behind disobedience. The worker who's sloppy, the worker who's lazy, it's because they got other priorities for themselves. They're thinking about other things rather than what they should be thinking about. And they're trying to manage their life to do as little at work as possible so they can get what they want. Or they're just wanting to work around the rules to get the promotion or whatever their thought is. They're missing the point. If you're Christian, your reward isn't here anyway. So the best thing you can do is to serve Christ well in your current job, knowing that in eternity, that's where you find your real reward. And by the way, it's been my experience that you're also likely to see rewards in your job. Doing a good job is typically the best way to get rewarded in your job. So it benefits the master, that is the employer. It benefits you, and it benefits Christ when we take that attitude into our workplace. And then finally, the last relationship of submission. This is the counter to slaves and masters. Now we're looking at masters to their slaves. First line, Paul says, masters, you do the same things to them. What he means is, Seek also to please the Lord in how you manage those who are under your care. The master's in his job also. What's his job? To manage those under his care. So as a slave submits to a master's authority, now a master is called to submit to the dignity of those under their care. 
Notice Paul tells masters, you can't even threaten them anymore. No longer use intimidation. No longer use force to compel their obedience. And he says, you know, the Lord doesn't show favor or partiality either. And so just because you're rich and you're powerful now, understand that when you stand before him, you're going to lose all of that distinction. You're not going to have any of those advantages. You and that slave, you'll be standing side by side as equals before the Lord by faith alone. And so at that point, what you did to him is going to matter to the Lord. Keep that in mind. We've talked a lot now about wives and husbands and how that was countercultural and controversial. But I've got to be honest with you. I will bet you that in the first century when this was written and delivered, the most controversial on this list was this one. Very few people have trouble with wives submitting to husbands or children obeying parents. But I'll bet you a lot of people were concerned about the command that says you can't threaten slaves anymore. Can you imagine a slave owner no longer being allowed to threaten a slave? How are we going to get them to do anything then? That's my right. They're slaves. What do you do? Would you mind helping me with this, please? It really hurts my feelings when you don't do what I want. And nevertheless, that's the expectation Paul is putting on a Christian master. It would mean then that a master is going to have to seek for other ways to motivate, to compel the service of their slaves. Ways that perhaps engender more love and respect rather than purely fear and loathing. Paul says the Lord places on his people this expectation that when you are in control of other people's lives... That you should be considering yourself as serving Christ, which means you work to preserve their dignity and to support them in ways that are helpful. It doesn't mean you have to excuse poor behavior. It doesn't mean you overlook the need to apply a suitable punishment if necessary. There's still times you have to fire people. There's still times you have to counsel people. We understand that's normal. That's not what Paul's outlawing. He's saying your responsibilities will be judged by the Lord in how you conduct them. Do them in a way that preserves dignity. Now, as we've come to the end of this list, and with it, of course, we've come to the end of our conversation about submission. I'm sure there's more than a few hallelujahs in the room. I'll let you say those silently, please. But as we've looked now at all six of these relationships, think about what they've all had in common. There's one common denominator that runs throughout. Submitting to authority so as to accomplish our mission. Respecting authorities in our lives, whoever they are, so that we stand the greatest possible opportunity to serve Christ well. That's the goal. The goal isn't to just be submitted so that we can say we're submitted. Or to be in charge so that we can say we're in charge. The goal is to get somewhere through those means. And the means are leading us to the end of being Christ-like and missionally focused. So friends, if you remember nothing else about this whole section of Paul's letter... Remember this, you've been called to live out a mission and you do that best when you're focused on it, when you're serious about it, when you're constrained from your own sin nature and there are authorities in your life that God has placed there to help you obey, to help you stop wasting time in ways that are unproductive for eternity. So when you submit, you make your own eternal outcome better. Even if your perception is it makes your in-between time a little harder. Let God work that out. Trust Him in faith that His purpose is good and that He will bring it about in the days that follow. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, for those authorities in our life. Those we work for, those who rule over us in the home, wherever they may be, Father. We thank you, Father, as a matter of faith, for I know there are days when our hearts don't feel thankful. In fact, there are days when our hearts push hard against those authorities. But by the counsel of Scripture, Father, we know that that's not in keeping with your will. That is a sign of our sin nature, our ungodliness, which you ask us to set aside. 
And so I pray, Father, for each man and woman here that our hearts would incline themselves to obedience. Wives to husbands, husbands to the needs of their wives. Children to their parents, parents to the spiritual development of their children. Employees or those under authority to the needs of serving their master. And Father, those of us who happen to rule over others as masters in one form or another, I pray we would respect and guard the dignity of those under our charge. Give us a heart to do these things, Father, for the days are short and evil. And we need the best possible support to serve you in the way you've called us to serve, Father. I pray that we'd have that support, and I pray you'd give us the heart to listen to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.